that song that we just sang was written for a play about the life of David. And I remember the, the first time that I heard it was when they first performed the play. And, and I've never been necessarily into musicals, um, which I'm sure might surprise you. But, but uh, the story that was told gave power to the song because it was a song about what God can do with ordinary people. And it gave me hope for what God could and might do in my life because I struggle all the time against what I am and what I want to be. But today it was so incredibly moving to me just to see EJ, walk out onto the stage because a year and a half ago, I'm the one that got up and brought him before the body. Because of the depth of his sin and where he was at, and that was not done as a punishment. That was done out of a desire to get all of us together to bow before God and to lay E.J. on the altar before the Lord. Because we believe that E.J. needed help. And so to see E.J. come out here and to watch him be able to share about his God, because his God Almighty reigns. What an incredible victory. And I know E.J. well enough to know he's not fixed. He's not done. But he's moving in the direction that God draws him in. And then to have Evan Stavnus get up here. And, and Evan is, you know, he's one of those young guys that I just like him. I'm not sure why. But I like him. I like, I like his drive. I like his passion. I like his spirit. I like the fact that what he shared is Something he's sharing out of the conviction that I know exists in his own life because he's fighting every single day against his own personal desires, his own will to surrender to God's will because he believes that his God Almighty reigns. And that's why we're here to worship today because every one of us, no matter where we're at, no matter how well we feel like we're doing spiritually or how many struggles we have, we're here because we want to move in the direction that brings us closer to God. Because we believe God Almighty reigns. And if you're like me, we're in an ugly world. We're in an ugly life sometimes where it's just hard to be able to maintain spirituality past the front doors of the building. And I love that I can come in here and see you. And it's not because you're that good looking. Look around. But it's because I see the direction you're going in. And as Christians, we're herd animals. And we move together. And so having 
people on the left and people on the right and people in front of me and behind me that are moving in the direction that I want to go. That helps me get to my ultimate goal to be with God. We have been over the last year focusing on the whole concept of transformation. And most recently we started a revival. And if you're not a member, and even if you are a member, let me kind of explain why we say revival. Because, you know, I worked on Monday in the yard pruning trees. And I'm real naturally fit and by nature just don't need to rest. I'm just an incredibly awesome physical specimen. In my mind. But it didn't take long before I finished the first tree for me to feel like I had maybe bitten off more than I could chew. And by the time I had finished, my neighbor had come out to kind of, I think, cheer me on and remind me I had one more tree to do in his yard. And I was standing in the driveway and I finally just laid down on the concrete in the shade and hosed myself down. And he told Libby he was afraid that I might have a stroke because I still hadn't finished his other tree. That's not true. He's a great guy. But it was, a, it was an incredible struggle. That's how my life is spiritually. I may have in my mind an idea of what I wish I was. But the battle to become that is really hard when you've got to do it by yourself. The reason I lay down on the concrete, because I thought I might pass out if I didn't lay down, but the reason I hosed myself off was because I needed to feel revived. And what we're doing, we're doing now, because we want to revive each other. We want to lift each other up, point each other back in the right direction with the rest of the herd, and we want to move with vigor and conviction in the direction that draws us closer to God. Amen? And so we've got a lot of different activities that we're doing, and there's going to be more today. But I want to focus on some of the aspects of that, and we're using the book of Hebrews to do that. Most of what we're talking about today is going to be taken from the text of Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, primarily 10 and 11. But the title of my lesson is Transformed by the Truth. To see E.J. up here, to know E.J., And to see what God is doing in his life gives me hope. And I need hope because sometimes I look at myself and I feel somewhat hopeless. It seems like I struggle with some of the same things I've always struggled with. And in writing this chapter of the Bible, most theologians believe that it was written. We're not really sure exactly who it was written to or even who wrote it. But the general consensus, it was about 65 to 68 A.D., and it was after the time when Nero had burned Rome, and he had put a lot of blame on primarily the Christians, but also the Jews. And there was an overall feeling about the Christians that they were not God's people, but just dupes. And there was a a tendency among the Christians, and especially among Jewish Christians, to drift back to things that they used to rely on to feel secure. 
And so a large part of the book of Hebrews is written to remind them that our God is an awesome God. And our God Almighty reigns, amen? And we need to be reminded of that because we're bombarded day in and day out by advertising, by friends and family members and people all around us who are so focused on their success being dependent on something other than God. It is easy to drift out of God's herd and into the world's herd and become more like the world. And so this spirit with which this book was written helps me in getting back on track. I struggle with every possible sin anybody else struggles with. And yet there's a part of me that wants to be spiritual. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, the writer begins talking to whoever he was writing this with. And part of why he's writing this was because there was a tendency to go back to even in the Jews' mind to some of the habits they had being raised as Jews. And we can do that as Christians. We come to church almost by routine. We dress up almost by routine. We can, as Evan asked us, give our offering almost by routine. But I love what he said when he tried to bring us back to letting what we're doing be an act of worship. And so much of what is going on here is it's trying to get us back to God because times were hard then. Times are hard now. And in verse 11, it says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and cows, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. A lot of the things that the Jews did, they did as a ceremonial representation that they were going to trust that God would release them from the consequence of their sin. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from actually to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He's simply saying, if you felt secure before by bringing your offering under the Levitical system before God, shouldn't you feel that much more? With Jesus? But there's a part of all of us that we become accustomed to what we do. And it can lose the meaning. You get up in the morning, you get ready to go to work, and you kiss your spouse and say goodbye, honey. But is it an act of worship or just something we do? One is sweet, the other's trite. And what God wants from us when we come together to worship, what God wants for us when we're out at the workplace, wherever we're at, is that we lift our hands towards heaven and kiss Him. That's what worship is. And so He wants what we're doing now 
to be done with that spirit and that heart, that we recognize that it's not the rituals that we do here, but it is the fact that we have a better priest, that we have the Messiah, the Son of God, that God let Jesus show the full extent of his love for you and for me by himself choosing to live just like we lived. And then to offer himself guiltless, without blemish, so you and I don't have to live in guilt-consumed lives. It's an amazing, amazing thought to worship God, not because we're trying to keep from going to hell. And I can tell you, I don't want to go to hell. I was cooking earlier this week for the college students, and it was so awesome to have them over. And I love being around them because they remind me of spiritual youth and excitement. And they're so fresh, and there's just something about them that it just infuses life. But in the course of doing that, I burn my finger on the grill. And I like to think that I'm relatively tough and bulletproof, but it hurt. And I came into Libby, and I said, Libby, look. And there was part of me, I just... I don't know that I wanted her to fix it. I just wanted her to know I was suffering. And she looked at me with incredible compassion and said, get some ice. <laughs> no, she didn't. you got to know Libby. She's like sugar on a donut. Just that little experience tells me I don't want to spend eternity in hell. Think of the hopelessness of hell. I don't want to go there. But that's not why God wants us to worship. God wants us to worship because we recognize who He is and how awesome it is that the creator of the universe and his son chose us. We're going to look at five brief things in these texts, and I'm not going to read through the whole thing, so don't panic when you hear five. The first thing I want to talk about is the superiority of Christ's sacrifice over every other sacrifice that was offered. These people had grown up their whole lives bringing an offering to God. Like Paul, who once said about himself that as for Legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. They, they were so used to doing the form of worship that they had lost in that act of worship the spirit of worship. And so what Jesus did was he showed them true worship in everything he did. Every word he spoke, every action, it just dripped out of him that he adored God. No one could be around Jesus and not hear about God. No one could be around Jesus and not see a reflection of God in his life. How many of us can actually say that no matter where we go, without knowing us very well, people are going to pick up on the presence of the Lord? That's what Jesus was. You couldn't be around him without him giving all the credit to God. The only thing that he drew attention to himself 
for was how he reflected God's glory. The thought never occurred to him that maybe he was spiritual too. He didn't think that way. And so there was just by nature being around him something that made people either feel incredibly humble and drawn to God or incredibly defensive. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in making that statement, he's not saying, I'm all that. He's simply saying that in me, you see the way to God. That in me, you see the glory of God. In me, you see the reflection of God. How many times did he say, I tell you the truth? And that was done to emphasize that in knowing the truth, the truth would not only set you free, but the truth would transform you if you truly believe. If you believe the confession of faith you made when you were baptized, it has to, by its very nature, change you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Do you believe that? Because if we believe that, that truth alone, should completely transform how we live our life. But the next aspect of that is, do you believe He died for you? This is the personal aspect of it, where it's not a congregational act of worship. I'm not here just worshiping as a congregation. I'm here to worship because of what He did for me. Here in E.J. share. touched me for Egypt. But it touched me for t- me too. Because Jesus did the same thing for me. That it's not like a meal that the only person who eats it gets fed. It's a meal that anyone who eats it feeds everyone. And so when Jesus says... I am the way, the truth, and life. When he talks about being the bread of life, he's saying that in me you find the truth and the sustenance of God. And so the very fact that he is so by nature God-loving, God-acknowledging, makes what he offers for you even more special to God. Steve Lounsbury came to God and said, hey, can you help take care of this one? God might listen to him. But if Jesus does, Jesus comes to God and says, I care about Tom Bundy. And the life I lived to glorify you, I laid down now at the foot of the cross because I love Tom Bundy. And I want you to love him too. Do you not believe that gets God's attention? And so in the middle of all of their struggles and everything that was drawing them away from God, Jesus was trying to draw them back to God by showing what it is when a greater offering is laid on the sacrificial altar of the Lord. And he's saying, I want to do it. I want By my life, by my sacrifice, 
to sign my name that this one belongs to me. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verse 5, it says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. God wasn't that interested in all their sacrifices and offering. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. Jesus knew that those sacrifices were, they were kind of ritualistic. And so what does he say? God, forget the sacrifices. Here am I. I will become Mike Rock's payment in full. And everything I am glorifies you. I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. And this is what it was written. I have come to do your will. He is declaring to God that everything he is, is there to honor God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you do not desire, nor he pleases them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When the Corinthian church was struggling by comparing their spirituality with each other and their gifts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all the way through 13, uh, Paul tried to get them off of that to see, as he says at the end of chapter 12, the most excellent way. And the excellent way was the way of love. It was the way of love where someone will express it in one of the most beautiful passages, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Love is patient, love is kind. He's wanting them to take the, the part of their nature that fights over who's the most spiritual, that fights over who's doing better spiritually, and just get back to a place of love where you and I recognize the sacrifice that brings us to this room right now today was the Messiah. You weren't invited by your neighbor. You were invited by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the host of hosts. You were invited by the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the Son of God. And that invitation is emblazoned with blood. The blood of a lamb, perfect and unblemished, that was slain just so you could be here today. Do you not feel you're in the right place? But the second thing is you go through this. That if you understand what Jesus did in the first place, then secondly, you see that Jesus is the one true safe place. If there is any place in the world you and I ought to feel like we can come and have no matter what's going on, be okay, it's with Jesus. When someone loves us that much, when someone lays everything out in his life as an example and as a reminder of what he's willing to offer, then we ought to be able to feel safe with him. In John chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast. 
Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world. He knew he was going to die. This is just a day and a half prior to what was the worst day in eternity. The day the Son of God was tortured by men. He knew it was time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And you know what he did? He got down on his knees in front of you and in front of me, and he took the role of an untouchable and washed our feet. Do you feel that? Right now, the Son of God, is washing your feet, not just to cleanse the outside, but to set the inside free. John chapter 14. Same evening, verse 1. He's telling the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I may not know what's going on in your life, but I can tell you Jesus is saying the same thing to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And I feel troubled today. But he's trying to comfort. In the midst of whatever we're going through, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Yahweh. Trust also in me, because my Father and I are one. If you're visiting, you're not in a place of perfect people. You're in a sewage of sinners. But there's sinners that the Messiah asked to be here. To express his love for us in the presence of his Father. Chapter 15 and verse 13, he tells him, Greater love has no man this, that he lays down his life for his friends. You and I are friends of Jesus. And we need to be able to feel the safety in that. Back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, the writer says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Every minister gets up and does what he's supposed to do. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The sacrifice can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifices for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy, us, by his sacrifice, he made us perfect, holy. Why? By his love for us. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart. I want it to not just be a bunch of rules and regulations. I want it to be in your heart. And I appreciated what both EJ and Evan 
and for the singers, what they tried to do for me today. They tried to connect my heart with God's heart to put his words in my heart. That's why we're here, to worship. But I love this. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. See, EJ is no longer guilty. Not just the outside has been cleansed, but the inside, and God remembers his sin no more. And if God will do that for EJ, God can do that for me. God can give me hope. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We're safe. We're at home. The Messiah, my Lord, my friend, brought me here third thing that Jesus tried to show us and that he tries to help us understand in this is the nature of true surrender. I believe that I have surrendered to God's will in my life. But the degree of my surrender vacillates constantly. Jesus held unswervingly. Didn't mean that he didn't struggle. Didn't mean that he didn't desire other things. It meant that he held the course. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew records one of the greatest battles, one of the greatest struggles that Jesus had the night that he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he needed so desperately to have people around him to support him, to keep him to the task like you and I need. And just like us, sometimes his friends let him down. Sometimes our friends let us down. But in Matthew 26 and verse 38, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you ever feel that way in your struggle to be spiritual? I don't know if I can do this anymore. I raise my kids perfectly. I'm a Christian. They had Bibles early with little animated pictures. We sang Jesus songs and made Jesus faces. And look what they turned out like. And we struggle. I remember the day I said I do to Libby. She said, you better. (laughs) 
That should have told me. And I have really, really tried to be a most excellent husband once or twice. We've been together for three decades now. And I am so grateful for her. There's no one in this world that's had more of an influence on me than her. And I love her to death. But I think sometimes when she looks at me, she's going, what did I do? And we're very fortunate today. We've got two of our dearest friends, Kevin and Gina Penny, are here with us. And Kevin and Gina, I've known longer than anybody in here. Uh, we were friends as kids, I think. Uh, I don't know when Kevin and I first got to be acquainted, but I know when I was six or seven, I gave him this incredible gift. It was a lost in space replica robot. It was awesome. And I wanted him to have it because he's my buddy. And the next day I went over to his house to see what was happening. And the robot is in pieces. He had dissected it with household tools. Outside of Libby, he may have had the next most influence on my life. But I love them. They're here just to spend some time with us. And every time we're together, it's worship. We've been together a day and a half. And it's been like a constant worship service. Because they help to remind us of what that surrender is supposed to look like in our lives. And they struggle. They're not any more surrendered than I am. But together, we can help each other to surrender the way that Jesus did. Jesus needed sinful men. And sometimes they let him down. But just having them there may have been what God used, along with the angels, to give him the courage to become the author and perfecter of our salvation. Are we at a place where we believe that we have a personal invitation in the presence of the Son of God and that that's a safe place? He's not trying to rip us off or or brainwash us or take stuff from us, but it's a safe place. And if so, that needs to be reflected in our surrender. If the truth is going to transform us, We have to go back and remind ourselves of the truth. And just as that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was faced with things that seemed overwhelming to him. He turned to his friends. That's why we gather together. Because we want to be spiritual. And we believe our God is an awesome God. But surrender is hard. So he modeled it for us. The fourth thing 
that he showed us. And this is one of the, the things that people talk about all the time today is true faith. Faith is a very easy phrase to throw out. And people use it almost to explain away our lack of actions of faith. See, we believe that it's by faith only that you're saved. But Jesus showed us what faith produces in his life. Chapter 10 and verse 24. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good works. Think about how we can help each other hang in there to fight the good fight. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Saying, guys, you need to be together. Is it a burden for you to come here? Or do you long to come here like that water washing over me? That's meant to refresh. That when we come together, is to revive our souls. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Saying, guys, if you continue to sin and you know you're sinning and you do it and you say, well, it's by faith you're saved. That's what I hear so often. God knows my heart. You're right. He does. He'll understand. He does understand. That doesn't mean he accepts. We use that for our lack of commitment at whatever level. But we're people of faith. And we compromise our convictions. Well, I'm not really sure that you have to change, that you have to repent. I can see that the Bible says, oh, you're supposed to make it a joy for people to try to lead you. But they don't have my leaders. And God knows my heart. And God loves me. All of which are true. But don't mean that we're right with God. He says very clearly that when we sin and continue in sin, deliberately going ahead, that there is no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Who was this written to? We don't know exactly, but it was written to Christians. So to us. This idea that we're once saved, we're always saved. It's not true. It's once saved, are you surrendered? Because in your surrender, your faith will be displayed by what you do. And he goes on to say that if God punished people under the Levitical law, the one where the sacrifice wasn't pleasing to him, how much more severely do you think he's going to take it when we treat the blood of Jesus as an unholy thing? The concept of desecrating, it is to look at the blood of Jesus from the cross, poured out for you, and to treat it as it was awful, something to be discarded. Do we really think God's going to give you a mulligan 
a do-over. It was the love of Jesus for you and me that made his sacrifice sufficient for us. For us to then turn around and treat that sacrifice trivially. God says, you better figure it out. I take it serious. And as he goes on down, he tries to remind them of the times in their life when they stood firm. And they didn't falter. And at the end of chapter 10, he says, we are not of those who shrink back, but we are of those who have faith. And then in the transition into chapter 11 is the transition from, guys, get up, revive each other. Be that refreshing spiritual lift that gets the herd going in the right direction. And stand firm to the end. Finish the fight. And in chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus' brother James, in James chapter 2, and verse 18, said, You, some will say, I have faith. I have deeds. You have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. What does your life show your faith to be? But the last thing that I want to touch on in this text is the completion of all of it. It's what James talked about in James chapter 2 is the concept of obedience. All throughout the Scripture, the concept of to obey is better than sacrifice. If nothing else, do what you are supposed to do out of obedience. John chapter 15, we're going to close out with this. Verse 9. Before he was tortured to death, Jesus looked at him and said, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. The way that God has loved me throughout eternity is what I have chosen to show to you. Now remain in my love. Hold close to that love. Rely on that love. For God so loved the world. Remember. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands. There's that conditional clause again. You will remain in my love. If you obey. If you do what you're supposed to do. And not say, I have faith. But instead, simply do what's right. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands. And remain in His love. I've told you this. So that my joy. What night is this? The Garden of Gethsemane. My joy. In the middle of the struggles. My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. 
He doesn't say, I'm going to stop trouble from coming, but I will teach you in the middle of suffering and struggle how to be full of joy. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are here at the invitation of the Messiah. And the message to you is simple truth. You're my friends. If you do what I command, let's be transformed by the truth of the love of Christ. Thank you very much.